Welcome to the podcast, Dorothy Brown. And Alan Coos. Hello. How are you, Dorothy, this week? I'm good, good. And how about yourself? Do you know what? I'm okay. But I get the feeling when I come in to see you, or you this happened, dear listener, this happened. I'm walking down the corridor carrying three three or four bags. And Dorothy puts her head around the corner. She goes, Kel's on. <laughs> and then that's, that's a perfect welcome, that is. That's really perfect. Thank you very much for that. I feel much oh. better after the coffee. Oh, that's good to know. Good to know. So I know nothing about the gentleman that we're talking to today, other than his name is Fred Hicks, and he's from Ipse. Yeah, so Ipse is a trade body for freelancers and contractors in the UK, and they've been around quite a while. As an organisation, I think it's really good to have a trade body that represents you, particularly if you're a freelancer, because... 99.9% of the time you're working by yourself, maybe for yourself, and having that representation and that help is really important, very, very important as a freelancer. I think so. And also, like I'm in a a trade body as well, and and that enables us to communicate to government and other bodies that need to be communicated with. And you've got some influence uh, being all together rather than one individual. And influence needs to be there, particularly, I would have thought, with uh, the self-employed. Yeah, and things like IR35, that that government initiative that's been going on and changing almost, uh, I think... At one point daily, wasn't it, last year? (laughs) Daily, yeah. So, so yeah, you definitely need, as a freelancer, I think you need that help. Anyway, let's find out a little bit more about Ipsa and talk to Fred. Thanks very much for joining us. Can you tell me what IPSE stands for and what you do? Yeah, so IPSE, that's that stands for the Association of Independent Professionals and the Self-Employed. We're a trade body that is the only one in the UK exclusively dedicated to the UK self-employed. And my job in that is I work in the policy team. I'm a policy advisor. And I work in the part of the organisation that's all about making sure that the self-employed's voice is heard in Westminster and all across government, making sure that the challenges they face and also the opportunities for the sector are sort of fully understood across those places that make our laws. And has has situation changed over the, the period that Ipse has been functioning? Well, Ipse has been functioning through different names since the late 90s. Okay. It's certainly changed an awful lot since then. We've seen massive demographic changes in the population of the self-employed sector. It's grown massively since the early 2000s. It reached a peak of just over 5 million, according to ONS figures, Mm -hmm. just before the pandemic hit. And it's obviously dropped a fair amount since then, but it's still nonetheless a very resilient, strong sector with about 4.1, 4.2 million people in it. The challenges we're seeing today, obviously focused around the cost of living, predominantly that's that's not unique to them though. But other things such as new regulations that come in, things like the IR35 rules, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Yeah. Those have changed in the last few years, and that's that's caused that's had an impact on the sector. The problems around late payment again, not a new problem, but we're finding that as the cost of living crisis really begins to tighten, we're seeing that that's something that's also affecting freelancers a lot more as as businesses that they work with might be more reluctant to let go of money quite as quickly as they did before. The challenges sort of are the same, but they sort of change how they look over time i suppose yeah i think that's true isn't it it's always getting paid you know there's a sort of barometer of how quickly things get paid when you're a freelancer and depending on what the company is that you work for if you've got a good relationship with that company you'd expect them to be paying you you know fairly regularly but if you've got Mm. this ad hoc relationship with a company therefore becomes a problem getting paid what's your advice from ipse about making sure that freelancers 
a choose the right companies i guess and also what would you say to them about getting paid a lot of i'd say the majority of freelance work still really comes from your network word of mouth uh, referrals friend of friend whatever so in that sense there might be a sense of um you know you take the work that comes your way you might not always have the luxury of being able to choose but there are obviously lots of people out there who are incredibly talented have very niche skill sets and they probably do have that luxury to be able to choose and they may be able to do some research, connect with people in their community. Well, you know, one of the things we try to do at Ipso is provide that kind of community where people can talk amongst themselves and share some intel, I suppose, on who's good to work with and who's not. There is data available online. Uh, the government actually requires medium and large size companies to publish this payment data. So Ipso actually hosts a tool on our website that uses this data, uh, which we call the Prompt Payment Index. Right. What you can do is you can enter a company's name into that. And you and from this, you can see all kinds of stats that they've published about how many invoices they pay within 30 days, what percentage of invoices they pay on time. And you might be able to you know, get a sense from that of, uh, is this person likely to pay us on time or not? In terms of making sure that you do get paid on time, the, f the best thing you can do is actually before the engagement even begins is to make sure that you've got a solid contract in place that... Mm really clearly sets out the payment schedule, what exactly you're going to be doing for the client, when, how, and of course the payment dates and make sure that there's absolutely no ambiguity there. That really can solve nearly all of the problems that could crop up later down the line because it's it's when either there's not a written contract in place or there's perhaps some ambiguous terms in there that the client might be able to dispute and drag the process out a little bit. But after that, uh, you know, it's it's a case of being quite sort of, it takes a lot of confidence, but you've got to be quite firm with the client and be quite robust and say, you know, this is the, the date at which I expect to be paid on. And, you know, you've got to have a plan in place to follow that up with emails to say, if there's not a payment within a certain week, there might be interest charge. And of course, there is a statutory right to charge interest on late invoices. But obviously, the final kind of solution is going to court and that's not ideal. We'd much rather have a situation where that's not the place that freelancers mm. need to go to finally get paid for the work that they've done. I am amazed, Fred, about the number of companies and individuals who do not have terms and conditions and do not write that simple phrase, and I know it's not simple in other ways, about if you don't pay within a certain time, we will revert to the interest that we can charge mm. under, is it late payments legislation? Something like that. Um, yes. And, and, the, and then there's the feeling that if you start charging it, they won't give you any work. But you're entitled to it. You've done this work. And if they don't pay on time, then charge it. You know? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, what you're touching on there is the quite delicate balance that freelancers need to strike when it comes to managing a relationship with a client. You know, you can go in really tough and firm and and really lay down the law, but you might be worried that they won't come back to you. If mm. uh, And that's a problem particularly for newer freelancers might be quite anxious about that. So that is a delicate balance. And it, and it really just, I think it comes down to a case-by-case -case basis, knowing what your client is like, depending on what your relationship with them is, Perhaps you've done lots of work for them in the past and you know that you're actually someone that they value quite highly and you might be able to you know, get the sense that maybe you can stick up for yourself a bit more than in other cases. Yeah. Of course, I would always, always encourage freelancers to 
stick up for themselves and uh, make sure they know their value, know their worth and mm. and get paid in a prompt manner to ensure that they can support themselves and reinvest in their business. Yeah. We're going to come on to it, the, the dreaded IR35. I know that Ipsa have been working and um, lobbying government for the changes. So just in case that you're not aware, IR35 means for a freelancer that you can actually be a freelancer and not employed as an employee. And the government have been tightening up uh, on IR35 regulations over the last, <clears throat> what, 10, 10 years or so, probably long 15 years, goodness knows how long. So what are Ipse doing and what are you finding with freelancers with respect to IR35? Are, are freelancers actually foregoing being a freelancer and becoming employed because it's difficult to negotiate and get a, a, a contract that allows you that flexibility? Yeah, so the big change that we saw recently with IR35, it happened in sort of two phases. 2017, we saw the rules apply in the public sector. And then in 2021, after a couple of years delay due to the pandemic, in 2021, April, we saw those rules extended to the private sector. Those rules, essentially, they're designed to tackle what's called disguised employment, where a company might encourage a worker to set up a company and that way, what the employer is able to do there is you know, not have to pay that extra chunk of employer's national insurance. Essentially, that's the, that's the bit of money that's at stake there. Now, obviously, for genuine contractors, genuine freelancers who really are in business on their own account, there's a very legitimate reason to have a limited company because of the you know various protections it provides and protection of the personal assets, the ability to trademark your company's name and things like that. And so what we've kind of found really is that these rules, as they've been tightened, too many, we feel, uh, genuine freelancers are being caught. Uh, it, it's sort of like a sledgehammer to crack a nut is a phrase that we often hear in the membership. Once these rules were extended, uh, so, sort of reformed in the private sector, what now has to happen is the client has to make a determination as to whether they believe the contractor is genuinely in business or if they're if the engagement is closer to that of an employment arrangement. Mm. The reason this has caused so much difficulty for freelancers is that we found that there's been a lot of blanket determinations by clients where they've said everyone that we work with on a freelance basis is now inside IR35, it's called. Mm -hmm. And so that, that means they are required to work for an umbrella company. So they're not directly employed by the client, but they sort of work for a sort of third party umbrella company to provide those services. We've also seen blanket bans from some clients as well, where they just say, look, we're not even going to go near this. We don't want the risk. We don't want the trouble. We're just not going to work with contractors at all. Just, just get on the payroll. And yeah, this has had a massive impact because it's affected the amount of income that freelancers are able to, to bring home uh, when they are working inside IR35. It's meant that there, for a brief time, there was uh, fewer opportunities around. One of the things and the problems that you have is knowing if you're inside IR35 or outside, as the government uh, like to call it. But they have actually got on there, uh, they've actually created a little portal on the government website. We'll stick it in the uh, in the show notes, uh, the URL to that. So you can actually go in and you can answer a few questions and it decides whether you should be inside or outside of IR35. Mm. But the advantage is to a freelancer of being truly self-employed and having an IR35, I like to call it an IR35 proof contract. And many aren't there. You've got that flexibility. And I, I think there's a really big advantage to that in a way for, for many freelancers. Absolutely. I mean, they are people that are in business on their own account. They, you know, they've set up this business. They put effort into sort of promoting, marketing it, branding it, building up a roster of clients, a portfolio of work. That is very much part of the business that they've created as a, as a sort of incorporated entity. And so if they're sort of forced to work inside IR35 for whatever reason, it kind of erodes at that 
self-employed status that they have and they're in a kind of limbo uh, world of limbo where it's like a quasi-employment they're not quite working directly for the client but they're not quite working for themselves either it's it's mm. sort of in between it's 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 not ideal i was going to say so what changes are say wanting to see in order that your membership can be in a, a clearer situation for their for their freelancing you might remember at the mini budgets, uh, Liz Truss, Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting's mini budget. One of the sort of measures that didn't quite get picked up on in the press, mainly because it was um, perhaps a little bit uh, smaller than some of the other measures that were involved. But actually, what came through in that mini budget was the reversal of those 2021 reforms. And this was something that we welcomed. You know, yeah. we we knew that Liz Truss went into government prom- pledging to sort of look at the rules. We were really quite encouraged to see that actually they were going to go ahead and reverse the reforms that, that had been put in place for ever since they came in. And even before they came in, we stated the impact these are going to have. And we, you know, some research that we published six months on from the 2021 reforms found that actually around 12% of contractors that we surveyed made plans to retire as a result of the wow. reforms. And now today we've got this issue that the government is very interested in all to do with economic inactivity and you know yeah. we really we think that there's a lot of people out there who probably could be encouraged to return to the labor market if there were some more balanced rules in place for contractor engagements so in terms of what we'd like to see i mean we've urged the government to actually sort of reconsider that reversal it implemented of the ir35 reforms at the last mini budget but if that isn't the you know, if it isn't what's going to happen we would quite like to see just a broad kind of look at how these rules are really working in practice. We think that there's a bit of a disconnect between what was intended and what's happening on the ground. And this really feeds into the much wider problem of our employment status rules, which are also in need of being updated. We were hoping to see an employment bill get introduced in this parliament, which would have provided the opportunity to update our employment status rules to make sure that contractors, employees, workers, everybody has a clearer sense of their rights and their employers' responsibilities or their clients' responsibilities to them. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened. We would like to see just a much broader view of how employment status works in in the modern workplace. And we think that that could solve many of the problems that IR35 has failed to fix. I think anyone would agree who's a freelancer or has been a freelancer that it does need a reform in some way or or shape or another. Both from, I think, from a freelancer's point of view, the flexibility and knowing where you are, but also from an employee's. I mean, I've employed contractors and it's been um, a devil's job to make sure that you've got the contract nailed down and their understanding and everything else much more so than it would be if you had a uh, in my view an employee uh, but that again is just uh, just my view so hopefully that um, it will get sorted out in terms of what you're doing in the future what uh, freelancing is going to look like over the next sort of few years you know a lot of people have left the labor market as as freelancers do you think that we're going to see more people coming in or is it a fairly steady level of people who are freelancers Obviously, I mentioned the pandemic kind of eroded a big chunk of the self-employed population. We saw it recover a little bit, but it's been quite stagnant, depending on which kind of figures you look at. It's struggled to grow really uh, back after the pandemic, after sort of 20 years of pretty consistent growth in the sort of self-employed population. But we do think that fundamentally the self-employed sector is pretty resilient, pretty strong, and that there is a sort of huge appetite out there to work in this way. We, we conducted some research uh, and published it last summer on National Freelancers Day. This looked at employees' attitudes to self-employment. It was really interesting because we found that lots of people in all age groups currently employed in the UK can see themselves 
being self-employed in future. And actually, what was really interesting is that 12% of current UK employees are currently operating a side hustle or a sort of casual self-employed business on the side. Yeah. And of course, not all of these will turn into a fully-fledged self-employed business, but many of them could. And, and even if they don't, it, it means that there's this quite big interest. I mean, I was actually really surprised when that figure came out as someone that, you know, thinks about this stuff all day. I was really surprised to see it was that high. So I think that there is a strong appetite out there for this ability to be your own boss, to control the way you work, who you work with, the work that you do. You know, you can just vote if you've got a particular thing that you're good at, if you're like a, a graphic designer or, a, you know, an IT specialist, an engineer, you can just sort of choose to work on the things that you're interested in, that you enjoy, and you know, that can provide a sustainable income for, for you, rather than sort of dealing with office politics and whatever task oh, yes. uh, a, a manager happens to throw your way. Yeah. I think that's really appealing to people still. Considering your membership, what sort of Apart from the graphic designer, IT, and what's the other one? Engineers. Engineers. Yeah. Who, else, who else are your members? I'm just curious. Yeah, a lot of our members are what we would call, the term we use for freelancing, freelancers we define as people in the top three occupational categories, ONS occupational categories. So that's managerial, technical, professional kind of occupations. A lot of these are IT experts, they're interim managers. A lot of our members are, quite, are people that you know have had quite a successful employed career, built up a very specific expertise and have then brought that into a sort of consultative role, working for themselves or moving into contracting. But truly, there's all kinds of people in membership that we've got lots of sole traders and people working in sort of artistic professions, yep, journalists I, and other... I have to tell you that I have a t-shirt that says freelancers make theatre work. Because my, Indeed, my yeah, nephew is, was, because he's not actually at the moment, was a freelancer at the beginning of the pandemic. That's what they produced to try and raise some funds for, for that sphere of freelancers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. Obviously, in this sort of theatre, film, TV production world, there is a huge population of freelancers. Actually, a lot of them are members of their own kind of union that's specific to their sector. Similar with actually the construction sector as well. That's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, single population of self-employed people out there. But a lot of our members are actually outside of those sectors working in other ways. But really, it's impossible to define it in i could sit here all day listing different job titles that i've seen i've seen boat captains it's it's you know it's all it's all stuff you'd never think of yeah it's really interesting yeah and what's the future of ipsa because i i'm aware of its evolution over the years having been a Mm. contract myself many years ago so what do you see the future what would you expect people to see from the organization well, we're really trying to, at the moment, we're in the middle of sort of a campaign of really trying to get uh, out the message of why self-employment is a sustainable and, and viable option for people in all walks of life, for all age groups. We're launching a lot of advice pieces at the moment targeted at people considering a move to self-employment. And we're talking very practical steps here, you know, how to set up a self-employed business, how to find a client, how to make sure that your business is protected. We're looking towards sort of the next batch of people who are considering a move into freelancing and trying to make sure that they're supported with the information resources and representation that they would probably they perhaps don't realize they would benefit from so hugely but connecting them to this community of of members that ipsa provides can make a journey into self-employment much less daunting and much less uh, sort of lonely as well it's one of the sort of 
uh, yeah. benefits that we try to provide. It sounds like community is the way forward, doesn't it, in work, in whatever format you take. I completely agree. I mean, you know, the self-employed, they want to work for themselves. They've they've taken that choice. They've made that choice to sort of work by themselves. But it doesn't mean that they don't want to be connected to a sort of ecosystem of other people. And they'd like to, yeah, like, like we discussed earlier in the podcast, being able to sort of share stories about people they've worked with. And it can be quite helpful just to get it off your chest sometimes if you've had a bad experience, maybe, or, or a good experience. And it's, you know, it's it's good to point people in the right direction. There's a lot of kind of informal mentoring that can go on there. And that's that's really positive to see. I mean, obviously, we've seen this shift to home working. Now, self-employed were more likely to work from home or work from a kind of what we call a third space outside of a client's premises anyway. But since the pandemic, that's increased even more. And so one of the things that we're going to be launching soon, I think by the time this podcast comes out, we will have, we'll have launched, but we'll be working with a workspace provider called Andco. And this opens up over 400 workspaces and meeting rooms for right. our members to access. No added cost to their membership. And it's a really fantastic benefit. I worked in one of them myself just yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was really easy to book into. And I can see this being a really useful resource for freelancers who maybe they're on the move. They're moving between client visits, client meetings, and they need a place to work, a sort of dedicated workspace. Yeah. So that's the kind of sort of moves we're trying to make to ensure that our members are supported, providing sort of these flexible benefits for the way that they work. Uh, I've got one last question for you, Fred. Thanks very much for your time. But that last question is, well, what actually makes you thinking about it? What makes you happy? Just to stick with the theme of work and what we do, genuinely what makes me happy is when a member or even anybody that's self-employed comes to us with a strange problem, an issue that they've had, or they're just looking for a bit of advice. It gives me the opportunity to just sort of get my teeth into it. And being able to sort of help somebody that's come to you when they don't really know where else to go for advice and send them away with a sort of satisfactory answer. And, and you know, they say that, that, that's, you know, something that's really helped them. That's, I really enjoy that. And that's why I like working for a trade body. You get to sort of deal with these cases quite a lot, whether it's you know, helping somebody with a difficult situation with a client or giving them some advice on how to make sure that they can get paid on time. A couple of things that I've dealt with recently. I sort of really enjoy that feeling of sort of helping someone out with a sticky situation in their business. That sounds very admirable. I think I I would enjoy that too. Yeah. So Fred, how would people get in touch with Ipse? What's the best way? Go to our website, www.ipse.com. .co.uk. Once you're on there, you can find all the, the sort of advice pages that we've got, the issues that we campaign on, and you can contact our membership team or indeed my team, the policy team, to talk about anything that is on your mind. And we'd be very, very happy to help you. That's fantastic. So that was brilliant, wasn't it? I mean, I never realised how much breadth there was within the freelance world. Or indeed, how many people Yes. Of freelancers. Millions. There's huge, huge millions, four or five million. Yeah. That I hadn't realised at all. So as a, as a group of individuals, when they come together through something like Ipsay, they must have a, a lot of sphere of influence, I would have thought. Yeah, I know they've been polling uh, government and um, trying to get things changed with government, as Fred alluded to. And I think much water to flow under that bridge. Yeah, much water to flow under the bridge. And I was really pleased to hear, because quite often in in my sphere of work, I hear people say, there's nowhere to go to, to find out how to do. So the fact that they've got very practical how to do on their website, so anybody listening to this that is a freelancer or thinking about setting up a sole tradership or having a side hustle. 12 
percent of people. Twelve percent of people. I should go to their website and have a look at the very practical things you need to do. Very conveniently, we'll put that in the show notes, the, the IPSO website, and we'll also put that government link to IR35 to see if the inside or outside IR35, which is also useful for people who are worried about that sort of thing in the show notes, don't forget. Well, that's about it for this week. I have a very interesting guest coming in next time, and you are going to love her. Oh, interesting. You are. She is the sort of person that's going to set you straight and going, oh my goodness, why was I thinking that? Why don't I think of things differently? That's next time. In the meantime, don't forget, you can listen to this podcast again, or in fact, any of the other podcasts in the series by searching your favourite podcast host for Out of the Frying Pan podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.